We're going to go ahead and continue our study in the book of Revelation. I know it might normally take some time and do a topical thought, but I want us to, to press on and continue. So if you don't mind, we'll go ahead and stand. We're going to read the entirety of chapter 7 today. As I'll mention in a moment, chapter 7 is a bit of an interlude. So a little bit harder for us to make application today because we're really working our ways from the, the judgment of the seals to the trumpets and the bowls, which begin in chapters 8 and 9. And so chapter 7 is kind of like an intermission. It's, it's a pause. And God has a few things He wants to share with us in this intermission. So Revelation chapter 7, verse number 1. John speaking through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. In chapter 8, um, verses 4 and 5, I believe, we will see where these winds are unleashed on the earth and the devastation they cause. But for now, these are being held back. And verse 2 says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed, an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand, and of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand, and of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand, and the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand, and of the tribe of Nephilim were sealed twelve thousand, and the tribes of Manassas were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. The tribes of Issachar were sealed 12,000. And the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. And of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. And the tribes of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. Now, this list of 12 uh, of, the, of the tribes of Israel, the patriarchs, is a little different than you might find in other places. There's, there's maybe reasons for that we discussed. It's really not the intent of our message today. But let it be said, this is a broad sweep and representation of the nation of Israel being saved here, okay? That's the point. In verse 9, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude. So this is a second group of people other than the 144,000. And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. And palms in their hands. I cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto a God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders Answered, saying unto me, an angel takes this specter in and asks John a question. He says, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? This is a rhetorical question, not meant to be answered, but rather the angel now would provide the answer for John. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation. And have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. 
And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments as we consider the majestic, Lord, the, the awesome and amazing, amazing scenes of the book of Revelation. Lord, I, I pray you'd help us, Lord, to be inspired by the visions and then, Lord, moved to appreciate, Lord, the, the unimaginable gift of the salvation that we have and, Lord, all that it will entail one day. And Lord, help us to appropriately fear for the coming judgment. And Lord, may that motivate us to be the light to the world that we need to be. And so I ask for your help in this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. <clears throat> the previous chapter of Revelation 6 looked at a future time of unprecedented natural disaster that's coming upon the earth. A time of unrelieved terror, the kind of terror that people will be crying for the rocks to fall on their heads. It'll be a time of unimaginable slaughter upon the earth. In the first six judgments or sealed judgments alone, the Bible tells us that 25% of the population of the earth, well over a billion people, two billion people, I guess we're getting to that point, two billion people will be lost and slain during this single time in future history. A great number as the book of Revelation proceeds. This coming day is known as the Great Tribulation. And they will be days of distress unlike anything this world has ever seen on a completely different, unimaginable cosmic scale. This time of seven years will conclude with the Lord Jesus Christ coming back physically to this earth in great might and dominion to conquer and to take back that which Satan has attempted to steal away through sin and deception. The process whereby the Lord will judge this earth and take it back is through the opening to this point of the seven seals. Again, these seals we have read are judgments being removed from a scroll that we've called the, uh, you know, the, the title deed of the earth. It is the it is the encompassing detail of human history. And, and as these seals are removed one by one in sequence, now six having been removed, um, judgments now are loosed upon the earth, uh, leaving humanity in this unrestrained place now. And it, it'll be just full of sin and misery. The first four judgments involve four horsemen. And we call them the four riders or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And these four horsemen will unleash war, famine, pestilence, and terrors in the cosmos upon the earth. The sixth seal culminates in the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we have just described. There will be a time of cataclysmic destruction of all things and the establishment of God's rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. We call this the millennial reign. And that's how that seven-year period will end. Now, during this same time, of God's wrath that we are reading about, learning about, and will continue to learn in the coming chapters. During the same time of God's wrath and judgment upon the unbelieving world, Satan also will be engaged in a great war against God 
and against God's people. There will be a worldwide persecution of those who become Christians during this age that will be unparalleled in human history. And nearly all the people who are saved during the tribulation will die a martyr's death. Those who might be weak in faith will abandon their confession and turn other Christians in to the satanic authorities. The earth, humanity, will be caught in the crossfire of two great opposing forces, with God ultimately crushing Satan and the Antichrist in this fallen sinful war, world. The cosmic conflict, the time of suffering, will truly be, to borrow from the Bible itself, apocalyptic. Now, Revelation chapter 7 brings us to, if you know, we've just gone 6 and there's a lot of action there. Um, Revelation chapter 7, again, is, it's a pause. Um, it's, it's an interlude. It, it, it's, it's, um, it's a time where it's like God's allowing his readers to, to catch their breath, um, to consider all that he has said and seen. It's called a parenthetical section in the scripture. It's an interlude between 6 and 8 where the action really will resume. Now, I've said this several times, but the, the book of Revelation doesn't necessarily, I'm not saying that it doesn't have sequential, sequential order to it, but uh, it may not all fall out in the way that we read it in the order of the chapters that we read. Um, you know, if I'm telling you a story about what I did last night, I, things are going to come to mind. I'm going to say, here's what happened, here's what happened. And oh, and then this happened and this happened. And, and, and everything I'm saying is not going to say, now, 701, this happened. And then at 710, this happened. That's not the way we talk. And that's not necessarily the way the writer is writing, especially in this apocalyptic form. One way to understand Revelation is like, and I know you younger kids are too, old, uh, too young for this, but you remember overlays? And so it's like you have an overlay and you lay it down on a screen and then you see something and then you have another overlay and it like uh, gives you a more encompassing vision in that same time frame. Uh, much of Revelation can very much be like it. It's a bit of an overlay. It's a story told and then retold with other things happening in the same time frame. And that's what's happening in part in chapter 7. We know that this is not necessarily sequential because the sixth seal... Um, really brings us the advent of Christ. And the seventh seal actually contains the trumpets and the bowls. And so the whole point of that is, is, is I don't want you to get in your brain necessarily that all this is happening, you know, dot, dot, dot this way. And I don't know that God really wants us to understand it that way. He wants us to be awed by what is happening and respond to this in, in a real way. And so much of what we see and read in the apocalypse are really different views into this seven-year period. Um, again, it helps us understand what's happening the same way the book of 1 Thessalonians, the book of Daniel, the book of 2 Peter, and other books do. So that understood, chapter 7 presents us to a new vision from God to John. And again, it's a break between the action in the 7th and 8th chapters. Many scholars believe that chapter 7 describes a time just before uh, chapter 6, or at least in the midst of chapter 6, uh, because we see here uh, an angel restraining other angels who have been sent to bring destruction on the earth. And that's part of what happens in chapter 6. And so in chapter 7, let, let's just kind of work our way through text a little bit. In chapter 7, uh, the Bible tells us that John sees a new vision in verse number 1. And like before, what G John sees is amazing and incredible. 
And so what he sees, first of all, uh, he evidently descends somehow from heaven enough because he's been in the throne room of God in chapters four, five, and six. And so he descends somewhat and now he can view the earth. And he has a vision of really the entirety of the earth, you know, somewhere maybe in the atmosphere. And what he sees are four great and mighty angels, most likely, could be, don't know for sure, the same four writers of the apocalypse that were loosed in chapter 6. And these angels have been sent to send these destructions and plagues upon the earth to loose them. And so John sees this, and that would have been an amazing scene to witness what it would have been like in these four corners or representative poles of the earth. And then he sees from the east another angel coming, and the east may be somewhat symbolic and meaningful because from the east the Lord Jesus Christ will come one day and enter to the city of Jerusalem. From the east the Savior will come. Uh, from, from the east is really, you know, where the Bible gives a lot of indication. It's, it's kind of like saying that God is coming from the east, so it's an indication that God is doing something. So another angel comes from the east and shouts. And he tells the four angels to stop, to hold, to restrain. Now, whether they've already allowed some things to happen or not, I, I don't know. So I don't know if they're ceasing what they've been allowing or it hasn't started yet. I don't know if it's important. I'm just saying for the moment, he, he yells and says, restrain, stop, hold on what you're doing. Do not allow these plagues to come upon the earth until, verse number three, he says, until we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Now, the word seal here is interesting and implies like a signet ring. It's a way of identifying that something belongs to someone. And the Bible tells us that there's going to be a number of people sealed by this special ring that evidently this angel may be carrying on behalf of God. And that number will be 144,000. And the people identified thereby are somewhat specifically identified as the children of Israel. And then they are told they come from the different representative tribes of the children of Israel. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. And I, you know, I don't want to preach another technical sermon necessarily like I did last week. But the, the idea of to seal these, Christ, of these people is means to, to make them God's people, to make them, if we would call them Christians, to make these people uh, uh, to belong to God. Somehow these people, these 144,000 Jews, are miraculously saved during the tribulation. And they're, they're, they're kind of sealed in a very unique way with this king's signet ring. And, um, and these, these angels are told to restrain the earth until all this has happened. And of course, this straining of the earth of uh, the wind is a metaphor for these things, but they're told to, to hold on. And so I don't know how this happened. I don't know how they're, I don't know the mechanics of how they're sealed. I don't know if there's a great revival that breaks out in Israel. I, I don't know if they see some of the wonders in the heaven. I don't know how, if God through the Holy Spirit speaks to their heart in a, in a really unique way. I, I just know that the word sealed here has the same kind of New Testament taught, uh, uh, Meaning, as it does like in 1 Peter, where we are kept, same idea that we're kept until the day of salvation. That means we belong to God. In um, Ephesians, we are, we are told that we are sealed until the day of salvation. And so this is what's happening to these Jews. I want to say this, they're saved. How about that? These 144,000 experienced some kind of revival and they're saved. Some people believe these are, this, that's a representative number. And the reason for that, 12 like seven, is a perfect number. And what you have here is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Those three numbers are all types of completeness. And so some people think this is an idiom or an expression of like people who've always been saved 
or who are saved, that's fine. Um, but when I can take things exactly literally, I'm just going to. And in this, this context, it seems to be super specific and God is even kind of like straining to be specific. And it seems to me what the Bible says here is that 144,000 Jews are saved. And that's what's happening here. And, there, and God somehow you know, knows the genealogy of these people. And, and I'll talk about a moment. He's, he's keeping his promise and his covenant by seeing these individuals saved. Now, these 144,000 will receive some kind of supernatural immunity from the terrors that are happening on the earth. Those which God are sending in wrath and the war that Satan has with them as well. Again, I don't know how to get bogged down here, but it makes sense that these are 144,000 Jews because remember back in Daniel, we study the time that's left upon the earth. And there's still seven years of Jewish time to be fulfilled. The time of tribulation is Jewish time and God is reestablishing his covenant here. So I just want to say enough that you get the idea of who these people are. But they are being saved. Again, in the same way Ephesians 4.30 and 1 Peter 1 indicates. Now here, these people receive a very divine protection during this time of devastation and destruction. And this special called out army of the children of Israel, um, coming from the different tribes of Israel, are coming with supernatural purpose as well. We will learn that evidently their task is to evangelize the world in a way that the world has never necessarily been evangelized before. They do so in a military fashion. They do so with purpose and with disregard for their life. And, and, and so they are coming to do this work. And I'm skipping through too many notes here. But they're coming here to do this work. And we know that the fruit of their work is, is mentioned next in our passage. Because what we find out next is that there are myriads and myriads of people saved, evidently in part by their work uh, during the tribulation that stand before God standing now as martyr. Remember though, there's a, what's going on in the world is God's judgments will be coming. Satan is fighting this unbelievable battle through his antichrist and beast uh, to destroy God and his saints. And so what we believe here is if you do it this way, if we go uh, verses one through eight, that would occur somewhere in the maybe uh, the first part of chapter six, the unleashing here. And then what we have in verse nine, and just look there very quickly. Let me just read this. So after these 12, 140,000 are saved, it says, and after this, I beheld on low a great multitude, which no man could number. And, and again, just like the Jews that come from all representative mankind of nations, kindreds, and people and tongues stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms of their hands. So this is important. These, these, it's a different group now in verse 9. And this seems to indicate we fast forward through the tribulation to the very end of the tribulation, or actually as we enter into the millennial kingdom, perhaps even in, into eternity. But these people... These people are, are, are saved in, in, in innumerable number. And they're praising God. Now, they're, they're dressed in white, which I'll talk about in a moment. They're holding palms in their hands. It's a sign of victory. And, and they're praising God. So evidently these people have gone through this horrific event. And now they're on the other side of it. They're the fruit of the 144,000 and the other ways that God supernaturally 
will, will witness in those days through an angel in the air and the two witnesses who return to the earth and they're praising God. It's an incredible scene. It's vast myriad. The angels, the beasts, the elders, all worshiping God. Very um, much similar to chapters four and five. We've, we've looked at those before. You know, wouldn't it be great to get a vision just this much of what that would be like? How that would transform our lives. And they're praising the Lord. And so John's, he's just taking this in. <laughs> Here's these four angels and then told to restrain and then Somehow these 144,000 Jewish people are saved and they have this mission to be God's army and multitudes. It's just like all of a sudden it fast forwards and he's witnessing this multitude of humanity praising and witnessing God. And you just, you know, I would be there in a stupor if you could stand and all of a sudden an angel, one of the elders, I'm not sure who it is, but one of the elders says, I, I want to teach you something. That's the way I praise that, but it's a teaching moment. So in verse 13, look there with me. So one of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these? We say this, who are those people? You know, he says this, what are these? You know, he's looking at all these, these people. Look at the myriad of people, 140,000. He's looking at all these people. And be like me looking at you, so where'd you come from? You know, who are you? And so it's a rhetorical question meant to teach. And John's standing in awe. Okay, now, we live in a day and age, 2,000 years later, we understand that millions and millions and millions of people are saved, right? For the last 2,000 years, people have been saved, and, and God has his people for that. John lives in a day where Christianity is infant. You with me? Like, it's, it's just, like he didn't know if it's going to survive. He's writing the churches of Asia Minor, that are in unbelievable persecution under Domitian. Like these little churches are struggling. We know that from chapters two and three. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't know. I mean, he has faith, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. And all of a sudden he's seen, he, like he's witnessing. Wait, there are people from Europe and Africa, North America and South America and Australia. Like, you know, he doesn't know about that, but like there's people from all the world. And they're all in white robes and there's more than I can count. There's just thousands upon ten thousands. And he's got to be wondering who in the world are all these people? And so John runs with, or the angel runs with that and says, well, who are these? And John doesn't say, I don't know. He doesn't know, but he says, well, thou knowest, Lord. You know, he shows great respect, as one should. He says, uh, who are these people who are standing in white with these palms in their hands before the throne? The question would be, got to be right there, says, how, how are all these people standing you know, justified and able before the throne. Where'd they come from? In verse 14, the angel provides the answer to this question. Specifically, this innumerable multitude, this specific group of people of martyrs. And that's what they all are. They're martyrs. You with me? They're martyrs. And these are people who gave their life for Christ during the tribulation. Now, the book of Revelation doesn't necessarily have the rapture in view in it. John, that's not what he's teaching about. We understand that before these events, from the book of Thess Thessalonians and other places, that 
you know, there's going to come a day that we call the coming of the Lord, um, the parousia, when all of a sudden, not necessarily announced to anyone but us, a trumpet will sound and you I will rise up with those who died and meet Christ in the air. Okay? That's called the church. And we're going to rise up there. And we're going to be with God during these events. As a matter of fact, we're going to make another grand entrance at the very end of this thing, at the end of seven years, riding white horses and we're going to be six foot two, two and have a dark tan and look really cool. We're going to have swords. Like I, It's one of my great hopes in life. I'm so ready for my white horse and that stuff. And we're going to come back with him. <laughs> Only a short guy could really appreciate that like I do. So... So this view of innumerable people is a different group of people. It's not the church. It's not the 144,000. But these are people that somehow were saved. Uh, the mechanics of all this aren't spelled out for us during this time. But in this time, being saved almost equates immediately with being put to death. There's a choice they had to make. Accept Christ and die or face, you know, this unimaginable judgment. And my brain's running 100,000 miles right now, and I don't want to stop with my notes. But this is a, its own miracle, by the way, which I'll get to in a moment, because, you know, we have this thought that if we miss the rapture, we'll just get saved in the tribulation. There's people who think that. I think it's a really foolish way to think. Because 2 Thessalonians tells us that during this time a great delusion will, be, will fall the earth. And I understand how all this works together, but it won't be necessary. Let me just say this to you. If, if a person won't get saved today, they're probably not going to get saved then, given the same opportunities. Not, so I don't know who's being saved here. That's not my, my question. I'm just saying this. Today's the day of salvation. And that's the smarter way to live. And, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me go back. And, and so... Um, we see here this, this innumerable number of people and they're standing before God and they're, and they're given this really privileged place. And they stand before God and, and, and they're getting to experience some of the most amazing things. They're servants in His temple and, and all their tears have been wiped away. And, and the language here at the end of the chapter is just so beautiful because the idea is that God spreads His tent over them. Like God just spreads His tent over them. And all the hardship they've been through is over. And, and now they are receiving their reward, even though they have gone through so much. There's, there's no more deprivation in the world. These people were probably starving. Remember, there's plagues upon the earth. I mean, whatever the mark is on the 144,000, literal mark on the forehead, not, I don't know. It's a mark that's distinguishable to God, at least. And that stands in contrast to the people of the world who for economic and social and political gain will see the mark of the beast. And so these people, you get this, that when people were saved, when they chose to be saved this time, it, was a, it wasn't like it is today. It was like saying, I'm going to trust Christ and I'm about to die. But now once they've gone on to be with the Lord, the tears are wiped away, their pain is gone, their deprivation. There's no more beating sun because the book of Revelation talks a lot about the heat and, and the, the cosmic things that are happening. And there's no more heat. There's no more sun for them to be painted by. The, the, the tent of God is now covering them. They've been ushered into the presence of God. 
And of course, this is the hope all of us have today that one day we will join this throng in heaven. And we will to join with them in the privilege of dwelling with God, being covered by his tent and experiencing the joys of heaven. This chapter presents to us another amazing future scene that will unfold in this world in the future. There's so many things to, that we could talk about. It, it, we could talk about the sovereignty of God, the omnipotence of God. I mean, he's, he's created angels that can hold back the wind. And not just wind, but the forces of nature that can rend the universe. Um, we could talk about the sovereignty, the majesty of God, his omnipotence. We could talk about how nothing happens to any of us unless God gives approval. A less of the 144,000 is, is if God says they're not going to be touched, they're not going to be touched. Right. And in a way, you know, that, that would be true for us. If God has plans and desires for our life and we're living in the will of God, we're, we're good. And we, we ought not live a fearful. We're not given the spirit of fear and timidity. If God is for us, who can be against us? I and mean, we could just, we could run with these thoughts. We could talk about from this scene, again, we could focus on the last half of the chapter in the worship of God and what's going to be like. That's going to be the occupation of eternity in heaven is just trying to absorb and take in the splendors and the wonders of heaven in the person of God and, and, and the Lamb and the Holy Spirit. It's just, I mean, there's, it's just amazing and every word descriptive. We could talk about the goodness of God. The thing I want us to consider, really two words, is mercy and martyrdom. Mercy and martyrdom. You know, mercy is not getting what we deserve. Of course, grace is getting something that we, we don't. And mercy is something that every one of us received when we were saved. The Bible tells us that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. That there's none righteous, no, not one. That the wages of sin is death, and of course, not just physical death, but eternal separation from God in eternity, spiritual death. So all, all we're left with, our only hope, is God's mercy. It's His mercy and His grace. And through these two agencies, you and I can be forgiven. And they come result of God's nature and His love, but Specifically, his atoning work on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, a fascinating question, which to me is in the middle of the chapter, kind of highlights this important, is this angel, this angel looks at John and says, who are all these people? And then he gives the answer. These are people who stand here because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And now they're rejoicing with the palms. This book reminds us that in all the epochs of time, in every dispensation, if you want to use that, we are, humanity finds its way standing before God one way and one way only. And that's we are saved by grace through faith. And we become the recipients of mercy. Who are these people? They're saved. How do they stand here? Because they've been washed by the blood of Christ. What makes them worthy to, to, to serve in God's house? It's not what they did. And it wasn't even their martyr's death. It was the fact that they came to salvation through the preaching of the gospel in an unbelievable difficult time. And they stand here today on that merit. It's the reason for their worship. 
you know, I don't have it in me to inspire you today to understand what this scene's going to look like. And, and most of you here are saved today, and so you have, a, you have a, a limited ability to understand what God's done for you. But when you're standing there, when you're there, when you, when, when you're gonna, when you join this group one day, I'm going to tell you, it, it's gonna, you're going to have blinding clarity on who you are and what God has done for you. And you're going to, when the words grace and mercy are said and however the heavenly language works, you're going to get down and fall on your face. Mercy. There's this lesson that even in the darkest hour of humanity, God's mercies never end. In wrath, God, remember mercy. This is a time where God is pouring out his wrath, but <laughs> he says, stop. God is not willing that any should perish. And he just says, stop. And, and, and I'm going to do this work where 144,000 are saved and they're going to be my event and they're going to work. And then this multitude of people are saved. This is an unbelievable display of mercy in the world's darkest hour. And now think about how, how, how this mercy is being displayed. The crowd, these are people who are allowed to be saved, even in the time of great delusion. And I understand all that, but they were somehow saved at this moment of great delusion. It's unbelievable mercy. But now God goes all the way back to Genesis and he remembers the covenant he established with, with Abraham and his people. And he said to them, I, my intent for the Jewish people is to be a light to the Gentiles. And for you to be a source of blessing from all people. And we know that history teaches us that the Jews failed that responsibility. And for the past 2,000 years, God has spread the gospel primarily to the Gentiles. And they neglected God. But in this last hour of humanity, in this last seven-year period, God says, I'm still going to be merciful to those people. And this is the beginning of the, not the national salvation of Israel, but the spiritual salvation of his people. And these people will march in then to millennial kingdom with those who haven't died. We will meet them there. God is showing mercy and remembering promises made 4,000 years earlier. God will not forfeit his goodness or his covenant. He, he remembers his mercy and he allows a spiritual rebirth of his people. Just as Paul longed to see the Jews saved, God has two and he's not forgotten them. And of course, then that mercy on the 144,000 spills out in mercy on all those who are saved. But here's a thought. And this is probably not encouraging, but it's a thought. When we are saved, we are all sealed, right? We're sealed. I'm sealed today. You can't see it in my forehead, but I'm sealed. <laughs> There's jokes here. I won't go there. But I am sealed by the Holy Spirit. These people have been sealed. And uh, that means this. You can't unseal me. I am predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. I, I'm not going to doctrine of eternal security and all that, but I'm just saying... 
Um, you know, like in a wedding, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Okay, when God seals us, he doesn't unseal us. Okay. If you're sealed, you're sealed. And you're sealed to the day of redemption. And, and, and we are safe and, and secure in Christ. This 144,000 had a, a very unique immunity. And all of us have to watch care of God in our lives. But here's a, here's a thought. Just because all of us are now exempt as Christians, those who are saved, from God's wrath, that does not mean we are exempt from the devil's persecution. And so many people are disillusioned in this world, like life's hard and bad things happen. Yeah, I know, but you're sealed. And I know that may not, may not feel uh, adequate compensation for the hard time you're going through today, but you're sealed. That means everything that, that we read about here in terms of heaven is going to be yours one day. And man, this is just, life's not fair. It stinks. Yeah. You're going to be spared God's wrath, not necessarily this world's persecution, but here, my friend, you're sealed. And I wish that was, I could make that mean more to you today than I know how to articulate. <laughs> you're wrapped up in God's goodness and nothing can take that away from you. Like it, it is yours forever. And those who are saved here, you know, in the tribulation, they received, um, you know, the seal of the Holy Spirit. And yes, they gave their lives, but their compensation was the fact that they were washed in the blood. They were sealed by the Holy Spirit and they stand here before God. I, I want us to try to, to be inspired by this today, to, to realize it today. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have, the, you have the mark of God in you and on you. And you're identified as His in the same, in a, in the same overall way, different, unique than the 144,000, but you belong to God. Now, when God sealed the 144,000, He just didn't say, there you go, good. He gave them a mission. And he's given us a mission. And, and just the way they were to try to win their world and their generation, we have the exact same obligation today. We are sealed. We are sanctified. We are set apart. We are predestined to be formed in the image of Christ. And you and I, having been given that great privilege in God's mercy through his grace by faith. Today we're celebrating Independence Day. There's been wars in the past 200 years, okay? You know, the people fighting those wars had two options, okay? They had two options as a soldier, persevere to the end or die. There's no backing up. There's no going in the direction. Persevere to the end, end of the war, end of your duty, your tour, whatever, but you persevere to the end, you want to go to, you, you, you want to navigate to the end of this thing the right way, you persevere the end and or you give your life. When I consider this text and I've been trying to gently push this, the petty, small, little things that keep the people of God from coming to church and serving him amaze me. The Revelation teaches this. People gave their lives 
just to say they were Christian. Well, if we're going to share in their being sealed, if we're going to share in their identity, if we're going to share in their future reward, if we're going to share in all the inheritance of blessing, if we're going to take God's grace and take God's mercy, receive his forgiveness, what kind of extraordinary effort should we be, be willing to give today? I just want to put it in perspective. We're small. Our vision is small. Our world's too small. Our feelings are too big. And today, we are, as the recipients of God's mercy, we need to give the same kind of effort. Persevere to whatever end comes or die trying. That's what God has called us to.